everyone. Welcome back to another podcast episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. Today, I have a super fun and exciting and bright and sunny topic for you, and that is death cleaning. So I know that sounds kind of funny, but I think it's very relevant. I find it to be a fascinating topic. This has been around for a very long time in the Swedish culture, but was popularized here in the United States around 2017 when uh, Margareta Magnusson wrote a book called The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, How to Free Yourself and Your Family from a Lifetime of Clutter. And really the, the gist of the book was to recognize that we accumulate a lot of things throughout our lifetime. And and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the end of your life, but there are periods in life where you can sort of, what we would say, diuresis in the medical field or just get rid of things. And that would be keeping things that have meaning for you, uh, giving things away, donating things, or transferring meaningful items to other people for whom they'd have meaning while you're still alive. So you can participate in this process that you can bring joy to other people or other organizations by letting go of some of the stuff that we so fiercely accumulate during our life. And really it has its roots um, in the Swedish culture, which is very simple and practical in many points, unless you've been to Ikea, in which case it's maybe not so practical and maybe not so simple. But the idea here is instead of accumulating large amounts of items that upon your death, some person who may be grieving has to go through and process, the the point here is to do this ahead of time in a meaningful way, not because you're about to die, but because it's part of the reorganization of stuff. It's part of the transfer of memories, the transfer of meaningful items. And then also to take, just from a material standpoint, items that you have in your possession that you're, not need, that you're no longer needing that really could be uh, in use by somebody else. And you've seen different iterations of this in pop culture. So there's been sort of the Marie Kondo approach. And at one point, um, David and I used to watch a TV show, I can't even remember the name of it now, where uh, this really ultra modern and simple interior designer would go into homes and basically rip everything off the walls, everything on the closets, and only put back things that were extremely meaningful. And so this has been an idea, and I think it comes from just the ever that we all know that we accumulate too many things. And they're a very consumer-based culture. We have things like Black Friday and Labor Day sales and Christmas and and all of these items that uh, become part of our lives. We don't have a really good process for necessarily organizing them or what do we do when we grow out of them. So we go through these different seasons in life and we have relics from prior seasons. And so I I know this uh, as a parent of young children that you know you know, what, what's relevant from zero to six months isn't relevant for a five-year-old. And so you're constantly trying to process through large amounts of, of clothing and gear and all sorts of stuff. But once you get into a different phase of life and you're at a point where you want to simplify, when we really focus on meaning instead of accumulation, then you can sort of derive from that this idea of where this came from, which is the the Swedish word, and I, I don't speak Swedish, but the internet says it's pronounced duostadning, and that actually means death cleaning in Swedish. This is supposed to mean a period of time where you're very intentional about going through your items and you're making 
various decisions to keep them, to give them away. So death cleaning is actually more than just decluttering. So it's not like going to the container store and reorganizing things in a way that's simple to use. This is actually more about a thoughtful approach to a different phase of life or what they would say even a thoughtful approach for preparing for the inevitable. There are several emotional and psychological aspects tied to decluttering in the context of mortality, right? So you can think of the emotional side of becoming sentimental about your prior life or maybe approaching a different phase of life or maybe you look at items or objects that held meaning from a long time ago. There's also a positive side to that and there's a freeing that can come from just not having to manage so much stuff. And if you take things that are important to you and might be important to somebody else or things that used to be useful for you and can become useful to somebody else and you transfer those items out of your world into their world, there can be some significant emotional benefit to that and not just for yourself, but for other people as well. So it's sort of the antithesis of this idea that you're hoarding lots and lots of various material throughout your home, which is costing money to store and you know, aging and not being and falling into disuse and perhaps making other people's worlds a little bit easier uh, by transferring those items out. And so the there's a sense of empowerment about it. I think in that period of life uh, where there's a higher mortality, there there's a lot of things that can feel disempowering, such as the progression of diseases or maybe a loss of mobility or a loss of independence. And there is something empowering about taking control of your own environment, of the items in your environment. What I see though more often is actually what I would call like a forced death cleaning. And not because, and I, I don't mean this in a morbid way or to, to, to focus specifically on actually dying. But this idea is when, especially in the rehab world, when you see somebody who's maybe been very active and driving and had recently retired and they have something catastrophic happen like a stroke there's almost a forced period of that right so you can't use most of those items anymore sometimes that person has to move into a different room in the house or into a different setting altogether and that is a very disempowering feeling when your possessions are are fallen to disuse not because you wanted them to but because you can no longer use them or uh, because you can't have control over your own environment so i'm going to talk about a couple of different aspects of this the first is just understanding the concept as a whole so this is more than just decluttering this is a thoughtful approach to what is inevitable for all of us and at some point before it happens, not necessarily the day before or even the decade before, but at any point in life, including my point in life right now when I'm 41, I've thought about this. I mean, we call it spring cleaning, but I get into these moods where I just go all over my house like a madwoman and start pulling things out of closets and, and putting them into boxes. And it's almost like I have to molt if I was an insect or something and let go of some former skin and get into a new skin. Obviously, I don't want to move every time I feel this way. And so part of what I know my reaction to that is, especially if we're moving out of an era, like at the end of summer right now when the kids are going back to school, I have this need to go around and, and do this in my house. I don't have the time right now, but and it's bothering me. If I could just get a week, I would just do it for 
for a whole week straight doesn't necessarily, I don't mean like cleaning, cleaning. I mean like actually organizing and processing. And that's almost how I feel like I help myself move through different seasons or move through different eras of my life. And I can go through and get rid of the clothes that are too small for my kids and let those, let those go almost in a therapeutic or ceremonial way and celebrate and also have some relief related to whatever era we're leaving. Um, and I, I like just having it update and reflect whatever my life is at that time. So I get to be very uncomfortable when my environment is reflecting a phase that is in the past. Like right now we just got back from vacation. Oh man, two weeks ago. And I still have not unpacked my suitcase and that bothers me every day and I should do it immediately after this recording. But this recording was more important. <laughs> I digress. The idea is, uh, I, I call this death cleaning, but the larger concept is it's more than decluttering. It's like a preparation, it's a processing, it's a way to move forward. And there are multiple emotional aspects of this. So you can think, obviously, you could immediately think of the negative aspects like, oh, well, I'm going to die someday, so I do my death cleaning. And maybe that's a terrible name for it. Maybe we could just use the Swedish word if we could all figure out how to say it. But there's the negative emotional aspect, which could be the sadness or the grief that comes with realizing or coming to terms with your own mortality. But really, there's multiple positive emotional benefits to this. The first one is a sense of control and empowerment on facing the topic of mortality. And so in my clinical life, we see so many people face uh, disability or morbidity and mortality and be completely out of control and have no power over those processes. But when you have and retain the ability to change your environment to curate or collate the things around you, the sense of empowerment that comes with an expended effort and an outcome, usually on the same day or within the same hour, can be a very positive emotional experience. Now I know for those of you that have just finished your um, spring cleaning and you're listening to this, you may not feel that way or winter cleaning or whatever you want to call it, but there is almost a cathartic emotional feeling that could come from taking items related to a past situation and processing them. And that can mean keeping the most important things or the most meaningful things and passing the rest along, donating them, giving them to somebody else that might find meaning in them. So in pop culture, this this is, becomes very trendy uh, in, in regular cycles. So most, releases, most recently with Marie Kondo and that approach to almost fanatical organization. But I uh, there's even lots and lots of TV shows on HGTV and other, other networks that really do focus on reorganizing, processing, cleaning things up, simplifying things. Uh, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, which I have mixed feelings about commercializing this part of mental illness, but the shows that are related to hoarding um, and people feeling empowered by retaining the uh, physical items in their home. And that's a very complex condition that outside the scope of what we're talking about today. But the idea is that when you are able to exercise the control of your environment, the actual objects in your environment, how much space is occupied around you and what's occupying it, then there can be an emotional benefit 
to that as well. And you can see even a sense of relief or comfort through that process of letting go of unnecessary possessions. And uh, that's what some of the highlights of these various TV shows are. Once people start to let things go, um, they start to feel lighter, they start to feel more uh, excited and free, and then they, they can write a new um, environment for themselves. And I think that's really interesting. It's almost like to me, like environmental programming, uh, another passion of mine and just understanding the impact of the environment on your, your, uh, physical and psychological well-being, And part of that is understanding the items and their role in your environment. So the idea is also, uh, detaching sentimental value from a large number of physical items. And so I think of this, like, my son gets a medal or two every time he plays in a uh, little league sports um, engagement. I don't know, whatever it is. And we started putting his little medals on a tack. And he's played enough seasons that they're uh, eventually the tack's going to break. And I don't particularly have a lot of interest in retaining all these medals, but they're very important to him. And he attaches a lot of meaning to them. And then, of course, because he and his twin sister are in the same room and she has less medals, that becomes a point of contention for me. But either way, so people attach different levels of sentimental value to different physical items and the memories they hold. And those can be very important and relevant for a period of time. Um, but attaching too much sentimental value to too many items for too many different reasons, and you multiply that over the course of a lifetime, that is when uh, introducing something like this concept of where, which ones are the most meaningful, or if that's really meaningful, is there somebody else who would also get meaning that could now have that possession uh, and care for it? I think that would be important. Now, the actual author of the book I mentioned earlier talks about creating a box of items that only have meaning for you, that you don't think anybody else could inherit them and feel like this was really important and actually having a message on the box to discard upon your death. And I was like, that's gotta, I just kind of chuckled, like you just get a Sharpie out and you're like, throw away when I die. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, the idea is, you know, maybe there are lots of items that are particularly important to you and that you enjoy, but you don't, um, assume anybody else would. And then you have those more in a defined area with pre-instructions on what to do with it when somebody comes upon it later. And I think about this, my mom um, loves antiquing and has accumulated a large number of antique furniture or items. And by no means do I consider her a hoarder, but there's a couple of items that uh, her grandfather created. And I worry that I don't know what's going to happen to those or who they're going to go to um, when that time comes, because I know they're very important to her and how much it would mean if those items persisted in the family, but I just don't physically know where they would go. And so <laughs> I haven't had that discussion. She's probably listening to this thinking that we'll probably need to have that discussion. But, but either way, um, as far as what those possessions are, what their sentimental value is, that's going to be a very personal thing. The other part of this is to be kind to the people that come behind you. And it's almost like um, one of the big things you hear about, and I have a, some friends of mine that have just gone through a very close loss, is the first thing that comes to mind right after the initial shock is who's going to go over and process that room or that house or, or whatever it might be. And, you know, that's, that's difficult in and of itself. 
But the idea is that whomever is coming and and mourning you or uh, processing that or even maybe managing those affairs after you pass away, the last thing you want for them is necessarily to, to, to be going through large uh, piles of, you know, magazines from five years ago that nobody's going to read. And again, you don't always have to think about those people, but the Swedish are very practical and very simple in this way. They want simplicity and to help prepare that environment uh, to serve themselves at that point in their life, but then also to not overly burden the people coming to process that environment later. Um, I think that's another another approach that that may or may not necessarily mean anything for you, but that's a, an idea and where that part comes from. So as far as how it's approached, there's lots of different approaches for it. It could be broken down just into a room by room, uh, and it's sort of the you know you can have four different piles: the the keep pile, so keep here, it's it's useful or meaningful. The donate pile, obviously somebody else might be able to use this and you give it away for free. Discard, you throw it away. And then the other one uh, is distribute. And distribute just means I have uh, a lot of these items and I intend to give them to this person uh, and, and maybe distributing them before or ahead of time so you can see them enjoy that product or make sure that it gets to them or whatever it is. Um, that I think that would be very interesting. If you go back to the episode with Renee, number one, she talks about this. She talks about her father and stepmother creating an Excel spreadsheet with all of their important items, not necessarily valuable items, but important items that had a lot of meaning to the family and then circulating the spreadsheet amongst their children for people to basically sign up for things that they would have meaning for them. And I always thought that was such an interesting and thoughtful approach. Now that didn't have to come with the terminal diagnosis that wasn't done in a hurried way. This is, you know, they've lived many, many, many years after this process. And I always find that to be a, a very thoughtful and I think um, really intentional way to do it, right? So if you're going to have these items, you can't take them with you and you're going to want somebody else to enjoy them. Why not at that moment, just have a list, have it simple, have it easy to distribute at that time. This is partially on my mind because uh, earlier today, before recording this podcast, we went to the San Antonio Museum of Art and they have a large uh, Egyptian hall there. And I was looking at a lot of the burial practices that they would use in Egypt and trying to send items with people as they died. Uh, obviously, these are more of the wealthier or more regal, uh, distinguished people, but even within their sarcophagus or within their coffin, they would place items, they would make models of people that would be helping them take items into the underworld. And, and I think once we've moved beyond taking items to the underworld, once we've just decided culturally or societally that we don't do that or that that's not possible, then we're working backwards from there and saying, well, if we can't take it with us. If it's not serving us at this time, then can it be somewhere else? So another thing to think about is just really focusing on cultural and generational perspectives of what this means and how people do pass along things in any given house. And I don't necessarily think this should be limited to physical items. So another thing to think about is there are other uh, cultural practices. Um, one of them is called uh, an ethical will. So it's beyond the will of physical items. 
And the ethical will is passing on stories, uh, family stories, value systems, uh, ways of life, life lessons to future generations. And that can also be part of quote unquote death cleaning. It doesn't have to be physical items that you're putting in boxes, but if there's a story that you've always wanted to tell or a life lesson you've wanted to impart, you know, perhaps putting that into a, a, a book or a writing or a word document or even a video or recording or something of that so that that can also survive in the future, that would be great. Now, I'm going to put a tip in here. You might have a lot of life lessons you want to share with somebody else. They may or may not be in the mindset of wanting to accept all of your life lessons. So I always recommend if you're going to share life lessons with somebody, to share them with somebody who is receptive and or asking about those life lessons. So uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But um, if there is an accumulation of stories, etc., I think this would be really interesting. Now, on a future podcast, I'd like to interview uh, one of my really good friends that does this for a living. So he interviews people and takes their stories and processes them in high resolution video. And his actual company is called Story Keeping. And I have found that to be such a fascinating kind of watching his journey the last couple of decades into this. And he does these really professional, extremely high quality capturing of stories. I've always looked at that as a really interesting way to preserve a family story or cultural story life lessons, etc., for generations beyond even grandchildren. I mean, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, you know, and I, and I know this might sound silly, but I even think about this with this podcast, that we are in an age where things will easily outlive us. They'll permanently outlive us. They live on the internet, right? So there could be a day where my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren go back and listen to parts of the podcast, which kind of freaks me out because that makes me think I need to think about who could be listening to this in the future. But but either way, anyway, so so don't think of it so much as death cleaning, like some like another thing on the to-do list, like, oh, I got to clean out the closet. Think of it as how can you intentionally and practically simplify your life right now? And is there a potential that your life is empowered, simplified, and other people can benefit from that in some way. Whether that's by them receiving those items or receiving those stories, or maybe making it easier on them on the back end if something were to happen to you, whether that's actually passing away or just uh, coming into a disability where you'll have to move or be in a different setting. That's another way that, that I, I tend to think about it. <clears throat> What's interesting when I'm thinking about applying this to my life, even at 41, is it can also become a filter of your future purchases. What's the intent of that item? What value can it bring to you or somebody else? Can it be reused? Is it going to be donated? Is it going to be uh, passed on in some way? Now, thinking about it, Dave and I don't accumulate a large amount of artwork or things like that. We are, try to focus a lot on experiences. And so if I was to think of even just five things I would pass on to my kids other than maybe my wedding ring, which might be kind of weird. Um, although I have my grandmother's wedding ring, I think. I mean, I have it. I'm just not sure it's actually her wedding ring. There's some family controversy about that. But um, I guess I'm thinking out loud it would probably be 
my jewelry, though that's very limited, really just my wedding ring. Maybe my, my college ring. Um, not my phone. Like all my files, all the photos are going to be up in the cloud. So that's pretty cool. Um, I think we have some objects from some travel that we had even before we had kids. We bought some things in Greece and Turkey and some other exotic places that we were able to go that we have shared. And I would, I think that's probably going to be number two. If jewelry is number one, number two is going to be items accumulated in our shared experiences. So that would usually be through travel. So we have some things we've bought in Mexico and other places that we've been that I think the kids would remember when we bought them, where we were, what was going on. I think that could be really nice. I would think about my clothes, but I'm not very stylish. And um, I can't imagine that anybody would want to inherit my clothes. So those should probably be donated and my shoes. I've never really bought expensive clothes or shoes. Uh, my car, somebody should probably take my car. That's very useful. Um, what else? That's it, I guess. So if I were to truly death clean, I would pretty much get rid of everything. But like we have a bunch of pens and pencils that I still need, so I'll keep those for sure. But thinking about that doesn't scare me or worry me. I love to feel prepared. I was telling somebody this the other day. When I plan a trip, and I love planning trips, we love to travel, I usually plan backwards because I don't like to end the trip on some chaotic crazy flight pattern that has multiple layovers and we get home and it's just like exhausting and it just pretty much puts like a sad face emoji at the end of the trip. So I love to really look at the back end of the trip. When do we get home? What is that experience like? Can we talk about it that evening? Can we uh, have a day to process that before we go back to school or go back to work? And if possible, like to work backwards from there. And I think about that a lot about life too. So you kind of have two approaches. You can be very averse to talking about the end of life and uh, feel like it's taboo or feel like it's bad luck if you talk about it. And then there's, this is obviously a very culturally driven thing, or you could talk about it openly as something that's as inevitable as paying taxes or the end of football season and approach it like you approach anything else in life to be organized and thoughtful or, um, you know, intentional about it. And obviously I run much more in that direction. I was talking to somebody uh, about this topic, the topic of aging parents and death. I was actually, this was several months ago, sharing the idea of the podcast and what we were going to talk about. And I included topics of death and dying. And they almost reached across the table and put their hand across my mouth and they said, you, you cannot talk about it. If you speak about it, you've spoken it into the world and then it will happen. And I remember thinking, you know, and I want to be very, uh, very sensitive and, and acknowledge that there's very different cultural, cultural and religious backgrounds that create lots of different beliefs. But I thought, you know, it isn't the speaking of death into the world that creates death. I mean, death is the circle of life, right? That's just part of, part of the life. Like, it's going to come either way. And so whether it's spoken into or not, anyway, that was like the logical part of my brain. But then the second part of my brain, just that visceral reaction that this other person had to almost trying to, it almost looked like they were physically capturing my words out of the air and trying to push them back into my mouth is that there are some very strong gut level reactions to this topic 
that if it's brought up, if it's discussed, if it's broached, then that hastens or that accelerates the concept or you've put it out into the world and then it might actually happen. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to think about yourself on that spectrum. So if, if one side of the spectrum is grabbing those words and pushing them back in my mouth and thinking, don't ever say that out loud. We don't use that kind of language around uh, you know, our family because that could cause bad problems. Or if you're so extremely comfortable with death and dying that it's part of your daily or maybe not daily, that might be a little morbid, but like it's part of your vernacular. It's part of what you talk about. It's part of what you prepare for. It's part of what you're open about. I, I wonder just where are you on that spectrum? I think that's a really interesting concept. And maybe you were born into one part of the spectrum and you sort of want yourself or your family to now end up, you know, a little bit further in one direction or the other. I know with my kids, I, I very much want to normalize this. And I want to normalize this as part of life. Not that there isn't um, extreme sadness or grief or difficulty that comes with losing anybody that you care about. But in a way, thinking about it like there, there is a weaving of fabrics that comes when you are in other people's lives. And the way I think about it is we are all our own little individual thread and yarn all weaving into each other's lives in one way or the other. And so people weave into yours and then weave out and you weave into others and then weave out. And then overall, if you stood back 30 feet, the fabric is bright and varied and diverse and gorgeous and luminous and interesting. And when you go to, maybe I'm thinking about this because we're at the museum today, but if you look back at human history, it is so vibrant and so amazing and so incredible all the lives that have come before us and all the lives that are going to come after us. And we're just this tiny little piece of yarn somewhere in the middle of this vast, incredible billions and billions and billions of pieces of thread and yarn. There is a beginning for us and there is an end for us, but the overall fabric keeps going. And when you have children, you create more pieces of yarn that will hopefully last longer than your yarn and then they will maybe have other impacts on other people and it just keeps going. And when that piece of yarn is cut, when that time and that length comes to an end for one reason or another, the whole tapestry stays intact. And the people that you had weaved into might miss you weaving into it, right? But they're going to continue weaving as well. When we step as far back as we can and just look at things, it's a, an honor and a privilege to be part of this tapestry. And you only have so much length, you don't know what the length of it is. And I think this whole idea of really tightening up your yarn a little bit, <laughs> the little piece that you do have, and and focusing your energy and effort on how you're weaving into other people's lives and what is that looking like? And how do you do that in ways that are meaningful for you? And pulling you away from large amounts of material objects just accumulating around you. And maybe death cleaning is part of just that, that cleaning up around the edges, a little bit of tightening, a little bit of that um, extreme accumulation that happens in early adulthood through your, your child uh, rearing years and so forth and really acknowledging another phase where you can experience life in a bigger way by having less stuff, 
making decisions ahead of time, settling things ahead of time, so that these aren't tasks, inevitable tasks that are looming for yourself or for somebody else later in life. So really at the end of it, death cleaning is almost like a really, almost, I, I almost think of it like a, a ritual, a ritual to think about throughout your lifetime, not because you're going to die imminently, um, but because you're going to die someday. And you're just trying to simplify things as you go along. And so even though in the book, uh, I think the recommended age for doing this, at least as observed in the Swedish culture, is around 65, which would make sense because the uh, life expectancy is maybe in the mid-70s right now. And then at 65, you know, maybe that makes sense. But I think it makes sense at 35 and 45 and 55. And I think it as a concept being present with us, I think it pushes a little bit towards um, the concept of stoicism. I'll talk about that in a different podcast for sure. But there was a couple of years ago, I got really deep into understanding stoicism, partially just because of my own life view. And, and secondly, secondly, because of a lot of the classical study I did back in college and in high school um, with a lot of the Stoics. And so understanding Stoicism, the core, one of the core principles of Stoicism is the acknowledgement that death is all around us and with us at all times, not as an enemy, but as a presence, as a way to awaken us that life is very short that investing in meaning and investing in experiences, investing in others and ourselves is the point every day. Now, I'm sure you could watch a whole series of YouTube ads and not feel that way or commercials. And, and that's not really what the uh, promise of current consumption-based practices are. But, but stoicism um, as a way of thinking that life is short and being reminded of that as a way to be more alive as opposed to avoiding the topic or avoiding the acknowledgement of a finite lifespan and that that might change the way that you live. So stoicism to the extent which it makes you more alive is ironic, right? Because you would look at it and think, well, who would want to think all the time that they could die? Um, but if this is a concept in your brain, that makes you more alive, it might be one to consider. Now, if you're a clinician like I am, you can't get around this, right? I mean, you see catastrophic injuries or death as part of your profession. And so I have almost what I call a built-in stoicism in my life because I, I can't get away from the reminders of the uh, finality of our lifespans and that our bodies do eventually, um, our earth suits, if you will, uh, eventually give out for one reason or another. So I, I've, that was my, I think, processing or coming to terms of the process. I think really uh, getting into understanding stoicism was maybe one of my ways of finally starting to address that, which is being in medicine, uh, some of the conundrums and some of the complexities of being uh, a provider in medicine and what that means. So Anywho, like I said, this is a super exciting topic. I uh, am sorry, it's maybe um, maybe not what you wanted to hear on a Wednesday morning, but I think it is fascinating. Um, I think it is something that when incorporated can be very powerful for yourself and for people that you care about. 
I would love to hear what you think about it. If you want to give me a, a shout out to um, on my website or find me on social media, Rebecca Tapia MD on Facebook or Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. If you do engage in any of this, which there are some forced engagements, right? If you're going to move or you've recently moved, you're sort of like de facto death cleaning, I think. Um, or when, you know, somebody goes off to college or something like that. I mean, there's almost like a, a pre, uh, I don't know, uh, de facto death cleaning as well. But anyway, so if you've uh, done this and you have an experience with it, please send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. I love hearing from people that have uh, been listening to the podcast and just appreciate so much that you're taking the time to listen to this. And please, please, please share it. If you are finding any value in the podcast, share it with your friends. And please go over and uh, leave me a review on Apple or Spotify. Until next time, I love all of you. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you again soon. Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to take just a moment to review the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational and occasional entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. By listening to the podcast, we are not creating a patient-doctor relationship between you and myself or any of the guests. Really, it's just me and a possible guest or two, sometimes three, sitting around talking about difficult topics related to aging parents. If you have or suspect that you might have a medical problem or condition, you should seek advice from a licensed medical professional. If you have any questions or concerns, please read the full disclaimer in the show notes or contact me directly. Thank you again for joining us today. I can't wait to see you next week. Have a good day.